When Philip II reigned, his reign was a reign of terror, especially for Christians, because he made it illegal for us to have a Bible or to read from the Bible. He said if anyone was found reading from the Bible, they would be executed immediately. So he sent his soldiers from house to house and from town to town. No one was exempt. In one particular town of Flanders, uh, the soldiers went into the mayor's house. They began to look around to see if there might be a Bible that was there. The mayor was absolutely shocked when they unearthed a Bible. And so the interrogation process began at that point. They brought one family member after another. Do you know anything about this Bible? Is this your Bible? Do you read from this Bible? And every single person denied any knowledge of the book. Well, they got down to his maidservant, and she said, that Bible is mine. I read from it all the time. And the mayor immediately jumped in, and he said, no, 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 no. She just owns the Bible. She never reads it. And she looked at the mayor, and she said, it's the most precious thing. I read it every single day. She was arrested. She was charged. Her name was Runken. She was sentenced to death by suffocation. Here's how they killed her. They made an opening in the city wall. And then they tied her up. They placed her in the opening. And then they began to put one brick after the other until the opening was closed. And she would eventually suffocate from a lack of oxygen on the inside. Now, while they were putting one brick on after the other, they gave her an opportunity to repent, to walk away. They said, you can, you can change your mind right now. Just tell them that you'll repent, that you'll never read from the Bible ever again. This is what Runkin said. She said, Jesus died for me. I will die for him. They continued to put one brick on after the other, after the other. They gave her a second chance. She refused. Finally, they got done to where there was just one brick left to put into place. And the man putting the bricks in said, please, Please repent and tell them that you'll never read from this book ever again. And these were the words that he heard. Lord Jesus, forgive my murderers. And they set the last brick in place, and she died. Years later, they took her body out of the city wall, and they gave her skeleton a proper burial. This is a woman who died for her faith in Jesus Christ, and who died for the privilege of reading the Bible. Now, that's tremendous courage. Now, now here's the deal. None of us can relate to that. I mean, we really can't. We say that's an amazing story. I'm, I'm just struck by the courage of that woman, especially when she had three opportunities to change her mind. She could have walked away and continued her life. We admire a woman like that, but we can't relate to a woman like that. And the reason we can't relate to someone like this, because I, I highly doubt if you read your Bible this next week, that you're going to be sentenced to be, to be murdered, to be executed for it. But I do think you can better relate to this story. There was a, a young teenage girl, and she tried out for her cheerleading squad. And she was so excited when she made the team. And it just fit just absolutely perfectly because she had made a commitment to the Lord that she would always come on Wednesday night for her student ministry group meeting. And that she made that the primary commitment. And it was so good because the practices for cheerleading were on Monday and Tuesday night. So it wouldn't interfere with her time to be with the Lord as well. Well, one week it didn't work out for the coach, the Monday-Tuesday practice. And she moved practice to Wednesday. So the young girl, this happened in Georgia. This young girl came up to her coach and she said, listen, I can't be there on Wednesday night. I made a commitment to my student Bible study. I'm going to be there instead. 
And sure enough, she went to her student Bible study. Well, this infused, just infuriated the coach. Couldn't believe that the child would choose church over cheerleading. So she decided to change cheerleading practice from Monday and Tuesday to Monday and every Wednesday. Then she went to the girl and she said, listen, if you miss one more practice, you're off the team. So the next Wednesday comes rolling around. What will she decide to do? What will she choose? Will she keep her commitment to the Lord or will she keep her commitment to be a cheerleader? She went to church. Next morning, she was sitting there in homeroom, and the cheerleading coach came and dragged her out into the hallway. She said, where were you last night? And she said, very respectfully, I, I told you that I was going to be at church. And the cheerleading coach said, well, you know what this means. You're off the team. And the young girl said, I know that. I knew that when I made my choice. But you need to understand something about me. I'm a Christian who happens to be a cheerleader. I'm not a cheerleader who happens to be a Christian. Now, friends, <laughs> that, is, that is tremendous courage, isn't it? Standing for what is right when everybody else wants to do what is wrong. Standing up when everybody else wants to bow down. Everybody else wants to sit back. That takes courage to do such a thing. Living out your faith. Sharing your fears, facing your fears, doing what God has called you to do. All of those things take tremendous courage. Now, why do I talk about this? Because we're finishing up our study in the book of Esther. And Esther is this woman who has unbelievable courage. So I know that some of you have slept since the last time we were together. You might have forgotten the first part of this. Some of you weren't here last week. You haven't had a chance to look at it online on the app. If you haven't had a chance, make sure you watch the first message. Um, but we're going to continue on. So let me kind of recap where we were. Esther is this gal who gets uh, recruited to be a part of a beauty pageant. Turns out that the king at the time, a guy by the name of Xerxes, he's banished his former queen because she won't strut her stuff in front of a bunch of drunks that he has at a party. And so he has to have a brand new queen. And Esther doesn't really want to volunteer for this thing. Women were nothing more than pieces of property. So she finds herself in this beauty pageant and she undergoes 12 months of beauty treatments. And then it's time for her to be brought out before everybody else and the king decides who he's going to choose and he loves Esther's beauty and he chooses her to be the next queen of Persia. Now you would think at this point in time that they just live happily ever after but there was a man by the name of Haman. He's the joker in the story. He's the villain in the story. And he can't stand a person by the name of Mordecai. Now, you know who Mordecai is. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. He's the one who's raised Esther after Esther's parents have passed away. Now, Haman doesn't know about the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. He doesn't know that Esther is Jewish. Well, he hates Mordecai so much because Mordecai I won't bow down when he walks down the street or when he enters into a building. He thinks everyone should bow down to him because in his mind, he is second in charge of all of Persia and he deserves respect. But Mordecai says, I will only bow down to one person and that is the king of kings and that is the Lord of lords. That is God almighty, I'm not bowing down to anybody else. And it just makes him so very, very angry. He's very frustrated. So he comes up with a plan. 
Chapter 3, he goes to the king. He says, listen, there's a group of people in this country that don't care about you, don't love you, don't, don't obey you. We got a country within a country. He said, well, why don't you hand them over to me? If you'll let me do what I want to do with these people, I, I would really appreciate that. And then he bribed the king with a large sum of money and said, if you'll just turn the other way, then I can obliterate these Jewish people from the face of the earth. Well, the king liked his money an awful lot. And he said, all right, I'll take the bribe. You do with them as you wish. And so the king issued a decree that all Jewish people living in his kingdom would be obliterated within a year. Well, you can imagine the decree goes out into the streets and everybody is absolutely freaking out who was Jewish. Imagine if it was open season on Christians here in the United States of America. There would be protests. There would be weeping. There would be wailing. Well, Mordecai hears about what's going on. Let's see what he does here. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. In every providence to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. People are protesting. Mordecai is protesting, ripping his clothes. He's weeping. He's wailing. He's screaming. And Esther doesn't have a clue what's going on. She's been living the palace life full of manipetties and facials and massages and spa treatments. She doesn't have a clue what's going on in the real world. So she looks outside. She sees Mordecai right out there by the palace. And to her, he's making a fool of himself. She's like, you got to be kidding me right now. If people find out that we're related, this is not going to go well for me. I've just gotten into this royal position. So she sends a message to Mordecai. She sends some clothes to him. And she says, change your clothes. Clean yourself up. You're an embarrassment to me right now, I tell you what. Get out of the street and shut up. Would you quit doing what you're doing right now? Now, she doesn't have a clue what's going on. Mordecai, he's not going to shut up. Friends, let me ask you something. When's the last time you weeped and wailed over the condition of the United States of America or of the country of Belize? When's the last time you weeped and you wailed over the spiritual condition of what we're seeing happen in front of us every single day? When's the last time you were on your knees and you prayed desperate prayers for the salvation of a family member, for the salvation of a friend? When's the last time you tore your clothes and said, oh God, use me? Use me in a way I've never been used before. God, there's needs all around me. Help me to get out of my royal bubble and see what life is really all about. Help me be your hands. Help me be your feet. Oh, God, I don't want to live my life for a life of comfort. I want to live my life for a life of impact. So, God, use me, mold me, shape me, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. That's all that I want to do. When's the last time your heart broke over social injustice? When's the last time your heart broke over racism? When's the last time your heart broke over the needs of somebody else that God puts right in front of you and you have the resources to help them, but instead of doing what needed to be done, you turn to the left or the right looking for someone else to do what God has called you to do? Oh, my goodness, Esther. She's like, Mordecai, you've got to chill out. You got to get out of the street. This is ridiculous. You're embarrassing me right now. You know what Mordecai does? He sends the clothes back. 
When someone wants to shut you down, when someone doesn't want you to stand in the gap for Jesus Christ and they try to get you to calm down and chill out, you send the clothes back. This is what he does. He, he sends a message to Esther and he says, Esther, just because everything's great for you in the palace doesn't mean it's great for everybody else. Just because you're living a life of comfort, just because everything's fallen in place for you, doesn't mean it's fallen in place for everybody else. There's hurt, there's pain. And our people, your people, my people are going to be open season if someone doesn't do something about this. And then he says to Esther, could it be that God's placed you in your royal position for you to do something about it? And I want you to see that Esther is reluctant. She's not feeling it. She immediately goes into self-protection mode. And isn't that what we do? We, we know what we need to do, and fear starts to overtake us. And so what do we do? We start backpedaling a little bit, don't we? Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. Oh, I don't see myself in that role. You have to find somebody else to say that, someone else to do that. I can't meet that need. She goes into self-protection mode. Mordecai says, it's up to you. You go to the king. Stop what's happening. And Queen Esther sends back, the following message. She says, I can't do it. She says, everyone knows that for the man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther saying, Mordecai, <laughs> you don't just walk in on the king. You know as well as I do that there's a royal law that if you just saunter into the king's presence and he doesn't want to see you, he can just say, off with your head. <laughs> and that's the end of you. So you don't just walk in to the king's presence unannounced. He's got to ask for you. And by the way, Mordecai, it's been 30 days since he's asked for me. I haven't seen him for 30 days. Mordecai, the honeymoon is over. Do you understand what I'm talking about right now? She's paralyzed by fear. Mordecai sends back the message. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Esther, if you say no, God will accomplish his will through somebody else. Do you want that, Esther? Do we? Every single opportunity that he gives you is an opportunity for you to say yes. And every time you say no, you miss out on the blessing. You miss out on the adventure. And that's why you're bored. And, of course, boredom leads to complacency. And complacency leads to a life of no impact. He says, could it be that God moved you from an orphan to the queen for such a time as this? Come on, Esther. Do you think God intervened in your life and blessed you in the way in which he did just so you could be the fat cat in the palace? Do you think that was the God's purpose in all this? Do you think it was so that you could put together some kind of big old wardrobe of all the most expensive clothes and look, look unbelievably good? Do you think it was about you getting more jewelry than you ever dreamed, smelling better than you ever thought you could smell? Do you think that was what the purpose was all about, Esther? 
Did you think the purpose, Esther, and in, in, in God making you the queen was it so you would be the most desirable woman that the world has ever had? Do you think that was the purpose? People are going to die. Our people are going to die. You have to step up. You have to stand in the gap and do what is right. So Esther's faced with the decision, will she stand or will she sit? This is put up or shut up time. One of the things I love about Esther, she knows she can't do it. Not in her strength. She knows there's no way that she can just saunter into the king's presence with any kind of courage. The even thought of it is scaring her to death. So she sends back this message to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. You know what fasting is? It means go without food. Pray in the times that you would normally be eating food. Seek the will of God. Seek the face of God. Do without food. Seek God during that time. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish... I perish. I love this. Because before she made her move, she moved towards God. Listen, here's what happens. Sometimes we come to church, we get fired up, the preacher's talking about something, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we go out there, we're going to do something about it. Before you go out there and get ahead of the Holy Spirit, seek the face of God. Seek the direction of God. Seek his plan. Seek how he wants to use you. Be in perfect step with him. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. Seek his face fast and pray and make certain that what you're saying, what you're doing is something that he would say and something that he wants you to do. And if you'll do this, if you'll seek the face of God, if you'll seek him with everything you've got, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get courage to do the task. Because somewhere in the midst of those three days, she makes the decision. If I perish, I perish. But I will do what must be done. It's Esther's way of saying, nobody's going to take my place. Say that with me. Nobody's going to take my place. Now, say it like you're not scared to death, all right? <laughs> nobody's going to take my place. I will stand in the gap. I will do what the Lord has commanded me to do. And if I perish, so be it. My life's in his hands anyway. And he has determined the number of my days. And so I will be faithful to the one who's always been faithful to me. Do you understand the courage it takes to make this kind of a stand? To be this kind of a person? So they pray and they fast and she says, all right, I'm going to look for the opportune moment. And she decides that she's going to walk in to the king's presence. Can you imagine how scared she must have been? How intimidated she must have been? And she walks in unannounced, uninvited, and the king sees her. Now this is the moment of truth. He can say, off with her head and that's the end of it. Or he can raise his royal scepter as if to say, I'm welcoming you into my presence. What's the king do? He raises his scepter, which means she'll live another day. 
The king's in a good mood. Why is he in a good mood? Because of the prayers. God has gone before her. God has prepared the king's heart. God is already working ahead of time. And she doesn't even fully grasp it. She doesn't even fully understand it. But he raises the scepter. He's in a good mood. He's excited to see her. And he says, Esther, what, what, what do you want? What, what's going on? I'll give you anything that you want, Esther. What would you like to have? And Haman is standing right next to the king. And she says, you know what I like more than anything else, king? I came in today to invite you to a party. One of the things we know about Xerxes, he's never said no to one single party in his entire life. Remember, he's a drunk. Do you remember that? Last party lasted three months. He's like, oh, party, 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 party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Okay, where's the party? Where's the party? Party, 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 party. That's what he's doing. And she said, I want you to bring Haman with you as well. And so like, all right, well, he wants to go to the party. That sounds good to me. And so they go to the party. You understand what she's doing? She's buttering him up. Every girl's like, because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about right now. You butter him up. So he goes to the party. He pulls her aside and says, hey, it's a great party. It's wonderful. What do you want? Well, what can I do for you? She said, would you do me a favor? Would you come to another party? Just you and Haman this time. Another party, just the just the three of us. And Haman's like, you want me to come to a party? Just the three of us? With the queen, king and the queen? And I'm the right-hand man? I, I, I'm the wingman? That's what I am? Okay, yeah. That sounds awesome. And so the king says that he'll do it. So he accepts for a second time. Look at what happens next. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and now how he'd elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. So Haman, in the midst of the evening hours, is getting together contractors, and they're building this huge area, 75 feet tall, to hang Mordecai. And he's thinking, you know, tomorrow's going to be a great day. I'm going to get to go to this party. going to get to kill my greatest enemy. This is wonderful. But unbeknownst to Haman, King Xerxes is having a hard time falling asleep. So he calls one of his attendants in. He says, would you get the, the book called The Annuals of the King? Basically, what he's saying is, is, come read a book about me to me. That's basically what he's saying. And so the guy's just flipping through the annuals of the king, all the different things that the king has done. And he comes across a, a portion in the book where it talks about a man by the name of Mordecai who stopped an assassination attempt on the king. And the king raises up in his bed and he says, Mordecai did that. Uh, did we ever reward Mordecai? Did, did we ever do anything nice for Mordecai? He says, well, no, according to the annuals, we never did anything for him stopping that assassination attempt on your life. Well, that didn't sit well with the king. Well, the next morning, Haman's walking by. He's just thinking, this is going to be the greatest day I've ever had in my entire life. He walks into the king's presence, 
And the king says, what shall be done for the man who pleases the king? And Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. He says, well, I think this is what we should do. We should get a royal horse and a royal advisor, and we should put the person on the royal horse with the royal advisor leading the way, telling the wonderful things about that person. And the king says, that's a wonderful idea, Haman. You do that for Mordecai. (laughs) Huh? So that's what he does. He doesn't have a choice. So the guy he wants to kill, he's now leading on a horse, proclaiming the wonderful deeds that he's done. And it makes him mad. It makes him bitter. It makes him angry. But that's okay. He says to himself, that's all right. I'll get Mordecai another day. I still have this wonderful party to attend. So after he sent all morning long, walking up the streets, telling about the greatness of Mordecai, <laughs> he goes to the party. And the king asked the question of Esther. He says, what, what do you want of me? What's your request? And this is what Esther says. If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She says, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would, not, I would have just kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Then King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Who is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, the vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine. That's kind of funny to me. They had to leave his wine there (laughs) to bring that up. You want to make sure you knew he left his wine. King, up in a rage, left his wine, went out in the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Haman has no idea. He doesn't know that Mordecai is the one who raised Esther. He doesn't know that Esther is a Jewish person. And all of a sudden, everything's just caving in around him. And the king is really upset. And the king is so mad that he just walks out of the room. And Haman knows what this means. He knows he's going to be executed. He knows that his life is over. And he knows that his only hope is to run over to where Queen Esther is. And so he runs over to where he's at, where she's at, and he trips over his own feet. And on his way down, he pulls Queen Esther to the ground. And now Esther's on the floor, and he's on top of Esther, and the king comes back in again. And the king says this, I can't believe this. Will you even molest the queen while she's with me in my house? And you can probably guess what's going to happen next. It's over. There's an advisor that's there, and they say, hey, king, I don't know if you know this or not, but Haman's got a gallows 75 feet tall. Had never been used before, I'll tell you that right now. It's beautiful. That's what it is. It's beautiful. And um, he was going to hang Mordecai, you know, the guy who saved your life. He was going to hang him, uh, but uh, it's not being used. I'm just saying it's there. That's all I'm saying. So they put a cloth over Haman's head and they took him to the gallows and they killed him so the villain got his that's a great story isn't it so before we get out of here I got to ask you a few questions because I love asking questions why does God have you on this earth 
Why are you here? For, for what purpose is there a oxygen in your lungs and your brain is still functioning? Your heart is still beating. God has me here for such a time as this. What is it? You say, I don't know. I don't have a clue. Here's the questions. What breaks your heart? What makes you sad? You say, I, someone has to do something about it, and I'm the person to do it. This has to be turned around. This is inexcusable. It can't go on like this anymore. Let me ask you this. What gets you excited? What fires you up? You say, oh, man, I was made for this. All my gifts and my passion, my abilities, this is my sweet spot. Or how about this? What makes you angry? You say, this is wrong. And you pump your fist. And it moves you to action. What is the difference that God wants to make in your life and in the life of others? Start small. It could be a conversation. It could be a need. Start small. You ever thought about how God works? He has Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah are married and they're old and they can't even have kids. And they wait many years until they finally have a child. And that child is going to be the one to which Abraham's descendants are going to be as great as the number of stars in the sky. How does small does God start? with a barren woman and an old man. And then when Abraham dies, he's not the father of a great nation, is he? He just has Isaac. But then Isaac gets married and he has a couple of kids and over time, what happens? God starts small and does something significant. Where was Jesus born? In the small little town of Bethlehem. We shouldn't even know this story, you know that, right? And yet God starts small, and then he starts doing something incredible. So ask yourself, what's the small thing that God has asked me to do? And then you show up day after day after day, and you be faithful to what he's placed in your heart. And he who is faithful with a few things, God will entrust even greater things. I want you to get this. You're the best of God's creation. You're the best of anything that he ever made. When he made us, he said it's very good. And he didn't put you on this earth just to exist. He put you on this earth to thrive and not just survive. So why are you here? And for what purpose does he have you here? I am here for such a time as this. That's your homework assignment. Figure that out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so tired of watching people just mindlessly go through their entire life and never seek your face, never wrestle with the tough issues and the tough questions of life. You've given every one of us gifts and talents and abilities. How can we use those things to advance your kingdom? Lord, I know we're scared. Esther was scared. But she stood in the gap. 
She was willing. And Lord, I pray that when you look at us, you would just find a group of people who are just willing. Whatever you want, wherever you want, whatever you want us to say, may we be willing. May we be faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.